If you have your Bibles, turn to Malachi chapter 4. Malachi chapter 4. The question should always be in the back of our minds, where does this end up? Where does this end up? Whatever it is that we're currently working on, whether it's our finances, our relationships, our parenting, our jobs, what's the end goal? What are we striving to accomplish? What are we striving to accomplish when it comes to our finances? Are we trying just to make enough to make ends meet, buy the latest and greatest, or are we looking to do more than that, to help others in need, to set money aside for our children, to use these resources to support a cause greater than ourselves? What about when it comes to our relationships? Are we looking to just go along to get along? Or are we truly striving to improve our relationships with the people that God has placed around us? From our spouse, to our children, to our coworkers. Are feelings more important than the truth? Are there areas to improve in how I connect with others and how I let them speak into my life? Is God pleased with my response to criticism or encouragement from others? Do I strive to make Christ known or is he an afterthought? When it comes to our parenting, are we looking to get our children all of the things that we never had as a child, only to neglect and seeing what matters most? What are we aiming for as the end result of our responsibility as a parent? That they be good moral kids without visible external flaws? Or that their heart truly pursues God and they are broken people made whole only by the gospel itself? What do we do when it comes to admitting our own faults before our children? Do they see us admitting our own sin and repenting and changing things when God becomes less of a priority in our own home? What about our jobs? Is our job only a means to make money to provide or is there more to it all? Are there opportunities missed because we're only worried about paying the bills? Could a job give us even greater opportunities later in service to God? Or does it simply end with making more money and bringing more back home? Does God have a say in what I do in my work? Do others matter that he may want me to reach? Or is it all a dead-end job that's there to just pay the bills? You see, all of these are great questions to ask as we examine our lives. But they all can be merged into the ultimate end goal for all of us. When we stand one day before God, that day. You see, that day that many fear and dread because they know it's coming. That day that God will right all wrongs and address what's been tucked under the rug for so many years. You see, as we close out Malachi and we finish up in this last chapter, Malachi closes out his message to the people of Israel in pointing them forward, past their current situation, past the the current struggle, past the dispersing of the nation that was still to come. And he points them to a time that God returns to bring it all to a final close. After telling them that they had been harsh and robbing him, the group that repented, God shifts and says, you are precious to me. You will have something beautiful awaiting you in the future. 
God now proceeds to lay out the final picture. In Malachi 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 3 this morning. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. But to you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings, and you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this says the Lord of hosts. Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. When God uses the word behold, you are to pay attention. What's unfortunate is when we read the word behold throughout scriptures, we just quickly glance over it, get to the next thing, and don't realize that what God is saying, stop, Pay attention to what I'm about to say. The day is coming. The day that's mentioned throughout Scripture is meant to point them to the final event. As we mentioned last week in regard to the righteous and the wicked, there is a separation that occurs at the end between those that are with God and those that are opposed to God. God's fire will do one of two things. It will either consume or refine. It will either consume or refine. And we see that back in this chapter, verse 1, consume. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. And the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. That will leave them neither root nor branch. And the way that we see that God refines with his fire is in chapter 3, verses 2 through 3. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like the launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. God's fire works both in the believer and the unbeliever. And it has lasting consequences later on. So much so that at the end, the fire will still be used to examine What we've done in this life. Fire is mentioned throughout scripture as a picture of judgment. If I was to mention what is God's fire as a picture of judgment, the first place that would come to mind to even people that don't know the Bible well would be Sodom and Gomorrah. In Genesis 19, 24 through 25, here's what it says. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. So he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. In Jeremiah 21, we start reading in verse 12, God also says this, 
O house of David, thus says the Lord, execute judgment in the morning and deliver him who is plundered out of the hand of the oppressor, lest my fury go forth like a fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. I want you to understand something, brothers and sisters. When it comes to the fire of God, he determines how he uses it. You and I don't get to tell God, I don't want this right now. He determines when he wants to use what in each person's life. As we read the other week in the great white throne judgment, those not found in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire. Just so you know, believer, hell is God's hell. God's the one that essentially is putting people there due to their rebellion against him. And it's not a message many want to hear today. Because the only side of God people want is God's love. His holiness is disregarded today as it was back then. For the believer, though, and this is the encouragement, the end goal is different. But I want you to pause for a moment and realize one thing. There is a fire awaiting you as well, but it's a different one. There's a fire that's awaiting that is to test what you did in this life. In 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15, we read the following. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. Notice what it says next. For the day will declare it. You see, we have this notion that God deals with the unsaved during that time, but we're kind of left out of the loop. No, he deals with us as well. The day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. In 2 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, Paul reiterates this point. He says, therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. For we must all appear, this is believers, before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. What I think is truly tragic in the church today, and what's happened is that many in Christianity today lack a true understanding of the gravity 
of standing before God and giving an account. Christians, for some reason, assume that because hell is not awaiting, that it's not a big deal. Where have we gone wrong? I'm not going to hell, so it doesn't matter. That's foolishness. The gravity of one day standing before Christ and to see what we've done presented before him. I want you to pause for a moment and realize something, and I want you to feel the gravity of this. There are things that people don't know that you've done in this life, and you're terrified if they ever found out. God already knows. Imagine him presenting that before you as your life is called out. What we've done, both good and bad, or evil, echoes into eternity. And it has results beyond this life that we now live. God tells us constantly to be ready for his return. The question is, are we ready? It's amazing how many people love all the conspiracies of when exactly Jesus will return. And I'm always looking to myself and going, am I really ready? It's one thing to tell the church Jesus might come back today. The question is, are we ready for that? We ignore just like the nation of Israel. Even those of us that name the name of Christ ignore the fact that Jesus will be calling us home one day. Unfortunately for many believers, heaven is all that matters. Even if it's a horrible loss before Christ. The problem for many believers is the hyper-spiritual jock who thinks it's not about rewards. Jesus is enough. Believer, everyone in this world knows rewards and incentives matter. God promises us rewards and to brush them off as, they, as if they don't matter when it comes to rewards here on this earth, we know that we take them quite seriously. Tell that to an employee and never giving them a raise. See how that goes. Ah, you know, same pay for 10 years. That wouldn't be right. Many a worker has been promised more benefits or reward at the end of the year if they worked harder and hit their numbers. The drive isn't just for the reward, but to be pleasing to those in authority who will be the ones rewarding their team for a job well done. We reward our children for certain accomplishments in their academics or even potentially their hard work outside the normal duties. Believer, God rewards us here on this earth with better relationships, potentially more responsibilities. The diligent are prospered in this life. But the ultimate is in the future where we will one day receive the eternal rewards that will be given to us for faithful service on this earth. God is not looking to reward us each time we do something, but rather to reward us in eternity 
through the exam that we call life. You know what the problem with most Christians are? They do one thing right, and they want God to now change everything in their life. Like, I've sinned over and over, and then one time I did something right before God, and now I'm like, God, please make up for it. I did this. One text that clearly shows us that we're going to be rewarded is found in Colossians chapter 3. It's a longer text, but I think it's important for us to read, and I want to comment on this. In Colossians 3, 12 through 25, it says this. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which you also were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bondservants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. But he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done, and there is no partiality. You see, we clearly see areas that are mentioned that will be repaid in verses 24 and 25. In fact, going back all the way to verse 12, we see that how we work with others that sin against us will be a mark of reward in eternity. Whether we forgive, whether we have mercy, we're patient, we're kind, that will be rewarded in glory. How well you represent the Lord Jesus Christ to others will be rewarded in glory. How your family relationships are, how you've treated your spouse and your children will be rewarded in glory. Which means that God will say something to Christian men and women who refuse to do what his word says. It's clearly stated regarding these things. Abusive husbands and fathers will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. Bitter, contrarian wives and mothers will be dealt with at the judgment seat of Christ. Rebellious children claiming the name of Christ will be called out for what they've done. Those that we work for and how we are working under them, it's not just about making them happy when they come around to check. 
Believers, we need to be what we ought to be even when no one's watching. My speech should be the same regardless of where I am. Harder to do than we imagine sometimes, isn't it? I'm sure our kids have seen a version of us we would be terrified if they told others. Goodness, Dad was grumpy. Believers, this should be an encouragement to you as well to do what God wants. Knowing that he's not just going to notice what you've not done, he's going to notice what you have done for him. Don't just avoid what is wrong because the rewards are truly incredible if you and I do what God says. In fact, back in Malachi, there is vengeance that God exacts on the wicked and the saints join with him. In Malachi 4, 2 through 3, we'll read this again. But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings and you shall go out and grow fat. I love that part. Like stall-fed calves, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. You see, we, we have a reference by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, declaring the coming of the Messiah that will visit. In Luke 1, 76 through 79, we read the following, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Though good commentators disagree, I believe strongly that the Son of Righteousness is a reference to Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary, states once again, Malachi returns to the theme of the coming day of the Lord when God will punish all evildoers. Sinners will be burned up the way fire eats up the stubble. They will become like ashes under the feet of the saints. But the true believers will see the dawning of a new day as the sun of righteousness rises. Then Jesus will reign as king of kings and his people will frolic like calves let out of their stalls. You see, the problem for many of us when we read texts like this, we, we really don't take in all that's going on. Whenever you read a text that has both the exciting and then the parts you're like, my goodness, that makes me feel uncomfortable, you need to realize that God is a God that has everything balanced. God has different attributes that some of us prefer not to think about sometimes because it terrifies us at times 
What floors me is when I see churches sing anything with the word holy while they're openly practicing sin. I'm surprised the fire of God hasn't come down when they do that. The word holy should put a picture in your mind of what that really is. Holy set apart. The saint that has walked faithfully with God will be rewarded at the return of Messiah. And see, the problem with a lot of Christians today is they, they view Jesus through only one lens, the Lamb. He's also a lion of Judah. And he's coming back to reign. He's not coming back to apologize. He's coming back to take back what's his. It's his throne. Guess what, saints? We get to join him. Randy Alcorn, in his book, Money, Possessions, and Eternity, points out the following regarding rewards given to New Testament believers. He says this, Crowns are a common symbol of ruling power, though they may symbolize other rewards as well. Five crowns are mentioned in the New Testament. Number one, the crown of life, given for faithfulness to Christ in persecution or martyrdom. Number two, the incorruptible crown, given for determination, discipline, and victory in the Christian life. Number three, the crown of rejoicing, rejoicing, given for pouring oneself into others in evangelism and discipleship. Number four, the crown of glory, given to faithfully representing Christ in a position of spiritual leadership. Note that a prerequisite is being not greedy for money, but eager to serve. A Christian leader's preoccupation with money can forfeit this reward. And number five, the crown of righteousness, given for faithfully purifying and readying oneself to meet Christ at his return. There's nothing in this list that suggests it is exhaustive. There may be innumerable crowns and types of crowns and rewards unrelated to crowns, but all are graciously given by the Lord Jesus in response to the faithful efforts of the believer. Here's the, here's the truth that we need to stop and think about. Not all of us will hear, well done. Not all believers are going to hear, well done. And the question is going to be, why? Why is that person going to hear, well done, but this other believer is not? In fact, some will be outright embarrassed with how they lived on this earth. Living only for themselves and for rewards only here on this earth. If you and I are arguing that it's not about the rewards when it comes to serving God, then I want to also give you one more excerpt from the book that we just quoted. Randy Alcorn Alcorn points out, he says, false humility that says I want no reward effectively means I want nothing to lay at Christ's feet to bring him glory. That's what you're essentially saying. We are to guard our crowns carefully. Why? Because we can be disqualified from receiving them. We can lose them. They can be taken from us. We can seek our rewards from men, thereby forfeiting them from God. 
John warns, watch out that you do not lose what you've worked for, but that you may be rewarded fully. We can fail to earn rewards, and we can forfeit rewards already in our account. Believer, don't take this lightly. What a shame when many stand before Christ and they have nothing to show for what they've done in serving Him. Those who fear God will stand with Him as the kingdom of Christ is being established. In fact, in Revelation 11, we'll talk more about this next week, the witnesses are killed and it looks like evil has just won. In fact, they're celebrating the death of these two witnesses. But there's always more to the story. Believer, just because it looks like it's over does not mean that that is the case. How many times have we gone through that in life? I'm never going to get out of this one. And then you look back and God was faithful. He restored. And sometimes he, res he restores even more than what you had before. These men are raised from the dead and ascend with everyone watching. These two witnesses ascend to glory. What shortly happens after? They're paralyzed in fear. And 7,000 are killed in an earthquake. Something spectacular occurs in verses 15 through 19. I want to read this together. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the, kings of the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and, his, and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because you have taken your great power and reigned, the nations were angry, and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightning noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. God will still get the final say. Judgment is announced by the 24 elders who are anticipating the kingdom being established on the earth. And I want you to notice the part that's mentioned. The prophets and the saints will be rewarded as the wicked are being destroyed. Malachi finishes the book with a final reminder and prophecy, which we'll be looking at next week. But in closing, I want to ask you this question. Are you looking forward to rewards? Are you looking forward to rewards? Is your gaze there or here? Believe me, I know that I'm speaking to people that are struggling with a lot of stuff going on right now. We ought to be prepared for the fire of God, which will test us one day.
and see how we have lived our lives. Are you more concerned about the here and now? Or is your mind on eternity each passing day? You see, the believer, it's very easy to say, I'm all set, I trust Jesus. The question is, if you've trusted Jesus, why aren't you following him the way you ought to? It should matter to you that you have something to present him. Here's what's amazing that I don't think a lot of us pay attention to. The whole point of earning the crown is to lay it back at his feet. It's to say thank you. God will judge both believers and unbelievers. Getting into heaven should not be our only goal. If you're living for the here and now, without a perspective for eternity, you'll forfeit incredible things in glory with the faithful saints that have gone before. You want to have something to give back to Christ to show that you actually cared to serve. Believe me, you're going to come to a wedding reception without a gift, you ought to be ashamed. You and I ought to be ashamed if we have nothing to bring to the wedding reception. We ought to be ashamed if we as the bride of Christ are not ready for his return. Especially when the word of God tells us he's given us all things pertaining to godliness. God's given you all the tools necessary. To be perfectly honest, I don't believe just Lot will have what Abraham had in glory. Those two are related, but not the same in how they lived. There'll be a tremendous difference when it comes to those that were faithful and those that kick back and relax in the Christian walk. Believer, God rewards us here on earth with blessings in his economy. He has certain things that we know scripture says, given it will be given to. Yes, that's in this present life. Reaping and sowing. But even in those contexts, you read the following. I want you to pay attention. You've probably read these verses many times. I've probably mentioned them before as well. Galatians 6, 7 through 8. I want you to pay attention to what's said here. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he also will reap. Because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. There are things that echo into eternity in the way that we live now. When it comes to our finances, our relationships, our jobs, trust that God sees a heart that trusts him and promises that he will take care of his own. Not just in eternity, but here on this earth. Believer, if you're going through hard trials, don't let it turn you into someone that's bitter. Let it motivate you to persevere. Looking forward to one day receiving the crown of life. I want to read this text for you in James chapter 1, verse 12, and I want you to listen. 
This is out of the, uh, the Coleman Standard Bible. Or Christian Standard Bible, sorry. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Notice it says trials. It's going to take some time to endure, believer. It's not a one and done. There are things to work through, to endure, to press on. But notice that it's worth it to hear well done in glory. Especially that last part. He has promised to those who love him. Here's the, here's the truth, believer. Not all disciples love Jesus the way they ought to. A lot claim they love him. Not all love him. May it be an encouragement to us to live beyond this life, to seek what is it that we can be rewarded with to give back to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Just like these people that Malachi is speaking to one day will be rewarded for their faithfulness. Believer, you and I will be rewarded for our faithfulness to God. May we not be ashamed at his return. (laughs) 